we always get a little nervous when we hear companies ask the question, what do investors want from us? And I think that's the wrong question. I think CEOs need to say, what is the right way for us to create value as a company over the long term? We're going to develop a strategy to do that. No apologies. This is what we're going to do. And then find investors who will go along with that rather than the other way around. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Tim Kohler, one of the three guests joining me today to discuss the timeless truths of corporate finance in celebration of the 20th anniversary of our quarterly journal, McKinsey on Finance. Tim is a partner in our Denver office and helps lead our global team of corporate finance consultants. He literally wrote the book on corporate finance as co-author of the best-selling Valuation, now in its seventh edition with nearly a million copies sold. Tim also oversees McKinsey on Finance, our journal for finance executives that just published its 20th anniversary issue. In the lead article, Tim highlights three urgent challenges for companies and how the fundamentals of finance can help address them. That's what we'll discuss today. And in an upcoming episode, we'll ask Tim to reflect on the changes he's seen across the corporate finance and valuation landscapes over the past two decades. Joining Tim for today's conversation is Obi Ezekoye, partner in our Minneapolis office and an expert on M&A integrations and divestitures who serves global energy and materials clients. Also with us is Warner Rehm, a partner in our New Jersey office who leads our strategy analytics center and serves high-tech industrial and pharmaceutical clients. Obi, Tim, Warner, welcome. Tim, before we dive into the challenges, can you just start us off with what you call the timeless truth from the past 20 years? Thank you, Sean. It's clear to us, first off, that observing the last 20 years, working with clients, the core idea of how companies create value hasn't changed any. Companies create value through the generation of cash flows. And the way you do that is by earning a return on capital greater than your cost of capital and by growing the business. Um, it's also important that uh, companies create value by focusing on long-term value creation, not just meeting short-term profit targets. And the second theme comes more from the world of economics, which is all about competition. And, and competition is what drives uh, a healthy economy. It's a challenge for companies because you're always having to worry about what other companies are going to be doing. And whether it's in the world of innovation or customer service or whatever, you always have to be on your toes in order to be a successful company. Thanks, Tim. So let's talk about the challenges that you mentioned in your article. The first one is corporate innovation. Why do you feel it's such a crucial issue right now? There's certainly been no shortage of innovation, especially in recent years. We've seen a tremendous amount of innovation in the last 20 years. We've learned a lot about creative destruction through that innovation because a lot of the innovation has come from younger, newer companies and, and, and not necessarily from established companies. Over the last 20 years, since we, since we started McKinsey on Finance, companies like Alphabet, Amazon, Netflix, Tencent, et cetera, were, were in their infancy. Airbnb and Meta didn't even exist back then. And so while people often point to innovation in the tech world, right? If we look at what's happened in the life sciences, uh, we continue to advance on technologies to prolong life, particularly in, the, in, in areas like cancer research and, and, and things like that. But we've also seen it in other areas like consumer packaged goods. And of course, e-commerce has upended the retailing world. So the amount of innovation has been exceptional. And from an economy-wide perspective, it really doesn't matter where that innovation comes from. 
But one of the things that we have observed is that a vast majority of the innovation is coming from small young companies and that larger companies are uh, seem to be uh, struggling uh, to innovate. And I think that's one of the challenges going forward for larger companies is, you know, with all the talent and capital uh, that they have and knowledge of their customers, et cetera, there do seem to be barriers to innovation by larger companies. Some of our colleagues did a survey and found that 84% of CEOs, not surprisingly, said innovation is key to growth, but only 6% of those CEOs were satisfied with the innovation in their companies, right? So the question is, what is it that is holding larger companies back when it comes to innovation? Part of it undoubtedly is the focus on the short term. And we've written a lot about that. And we think larger companies need to be very focused on long-term value creation and not underinvest. Part of it is that larger companies tend to be more loss averse. They don't encourage risk-taking by their employees. There is bureaucracy and organizational inertia. And all these things are often a break on innovation. And so larger companies, we think, need to figure out ways to break through all the, all the things that get in their way in terms of innovation, to make sure that they invest to win in, in new areas. And oftentimes that has to come directly from the top of the organization. Obi, it looks like you'd like to add something here. I might challenge a little bit and say what we do see larger companies doing quite a good job of is what we would say is application development. So you take a breakthrough innovation or legacy technology and you find applications across a wide wide variety of domains from pharmaceuticals to life sciences to maybe consumer and industrial and maybe other domains. And I think large companies have done a great job in, in finding applications for their for their different technologies. I also just to build on that OB, not sorry, I, I do I do agree with that entirely. I think larger companies are are also good at incremental innovation oftentimes, especially be on the B2B side when they're working closely with their clients, developing better products or whatever. So, and, and not every company, not every large company has not been, been innovative, right? Two of the largest companies are responsible, Amazon and, and Microsoft for the revolution in cloud computing, right? They have taken those ideas and really pushed them over the last, you know, five to uh, eight years. So I, I, I am purposely stating the case to be a, a little bit provocative, but go on. I always think of innovation in two buckets. One is product innovation. And that's often what we, when we think of innovation, we think of, are, is the company making new products, things that run faster, use less energy, have different attributes that their customers or the end consumer wants. There's also process innovation. And I, I spend many of my, much of my time in heavy industries. And this is really thinking about the company's own processes to make their products. So the product is the same, but the process or the route to that product is different. And oftentimes in capital intensive industries or industries with relatively heavy fixed capital, the process innovation can be very value accretive to, uh, very value accretive to their shareholders and to management. I still agree with your point. I do think on the process innovation side, we've seen some really uh, cool breakthroughs in a lot of uh, the heavy industrials. Warner, what about you? Do you see similar patterns in your clients, pharma, for example? Yeah, what comes to my mind is sort of how is a large company to balance all this? So if you take, you know, Innovative Pharma, which sort of has the innovation in their in their title, we have seen a trend to acquire more 
rather than sort of invest in own R&D. But we also have seen, you know, a trend for alliances in general. So, you know, maybe less capital involvement up front or maybe having a broader portfolio with the same capital to sort of, if you want to have more bets on, on the innovation. So it seems to me that there is, it's not an either or, right? Sort of as a, as a large company, as a large farmer company, you probably need to take a lot of money into, into your continued research, but also balance then where you spend your capital between sort of research or development alliances and straight out acquiring and new assets. And, you know, the, the virus immunization stuff is a good example, right? Where we have a Moderna effectively a platform startup that was apply, you know, able to apply this and, and Pfizer, somebody who had an alliance with a, with a German company and so on and so forth, right? So we see various modes there that all by and large can be successful. So I've always said who but a hundred billion dollar company should take a one billion dollar risk. So as a large company, find the right way to invest in this and, and don't be afraid of spending into this, right, for your own. Because the value creation, I think, Tim, you would agree that the value creation is higher for your shareholders if you do it organically rather than acquiring. Yeah, I think that's my point. It's, uh, from an economy-wide perspective, it really doesn't matter where the innovation comes from, right? But from a shareholder perspective, you could argue that the shareholders of some larger companies are missing out because of the barriers to the innovation inside larger companies, right? And it could also be that there are ideas inside larger companies that we're missing out on or that get delayed. We've all heard stories of inventors inside large companies who get frustrated and, and go off on their own and make a billion dollars because the company itself was not willing to, to back an idea. Part of it also is, and, and we've been doing a lot of research in this, is that companies need to be, be more comfortable with failure, right? Encourage failure inside the company. Because as you pointed out, if you, when you, if you do have lots of capital, lots of resources, and you've got 20 innovations that you're working on and only two or three of them fail entirely and, 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 and most of them are just moderately successful and one or two are extremely successful, that's, that's a great model. And companies need to learn how to think about risk from a portfolio perspective as opposed to an individual project perspective, right? So what do you think of corporate venture capital, Tim, as a way to foster innovation, both internally and externally? Corporate venture capital is often undermanaged and is off to the side, right? And while I think that there are opportunities, I, I was working with one client recently, which specifically had a hands-off policy on the corporate venture capital, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Then, it, then they've got basically a, a venture capital arm which is a bunch of employees who are not paid the way ven real venture capitalists are making investments in, in startups and stuff like that. And so they're necessarily at a disadvantage. Companies and CEOs in particular need to be involved in, in the innovation. It should not be hands off, right? CEOs should be focusing on what are the top 20 innovative things that we're working on and how as I can, the CEO, make sure that we're moving forward on those things. Now we can do a better job of, of, of killing things that that are not going to be successful. I think that also frees up more capital and resources to do other things. And it also minimizes the commitment of capital to things that aren't going to be, aren't, aren't going to pay off. I think companies to some things are frustrated, you know, because they have, you know, spent a lot of money and not got anything. Tim, you've written a lot about the value of long-term capital. How can business leaders best ensure that they've got alignment between their shareholders and investors and the leadership and management's approach to innovation? 
we always get a little nervous when we hear companies ask the question, what do investors want from us? And I think that's the wrong question. I think CEOs need to say, what is the right way for us to create value as a company over the long term? We're going to develop a strategy to do that. No apologies. This is what we're going to do. And then find investors who will go along with that rather than the other way around. You're never going to be able to please every investor out there. There are short-term investors out there. That's a perfectly legitimate trading strategy, but that doesn't mean you have to cater to them. And, and most of the times when we talk to executives who try to please all the investors, they, they feel like they're, they're not really optimizing for anything. Uh, um, so if you look at, for example, the, the recent book by our colleagues on CEO excellence, you'll, you'll see stories of, of CEOs who've, who've really been successful, who transformed their companies and they go into, they don't worry about investors. They worry about what's the best thing for the company about the long-term and they're confident in, in pursuing that. Got it. And thanks for the plug for CEO excellence too, Tim. We'll share a link uh, to our prior podcast on the book and the show notes along with links to valuation. Obi, over to you. What's your take on how innovation ties into this? It's thinking in a portfolio of innovative initiatives, not just one innovation, right? And we we, we've done a lot of research and writing on programmatic M&A about doing multiple sort of small deals over as time. I think the same is true for innovation. And you want a portfolio of innovations that are sort of near-term, mid-term, long-term, and a risk-adjusted portfolio of also big, medium, and smaller bets. So we definitely don't think that innovation is antithetical to long-term investing. Yeah, and just at a, at a higher, certainly agree with that, Obi. And at a higher level, to me, it's interesting when we talk to clients. If we if we start the conversation on on long termism, we often end up also talking about innovation. And if we start talking about innovation, we talking about be, we start talking about being long term oriented. Those two are just just go so hand in hand. To, to split them up is almost arbitrary. So absolutely, the two things are entirely congruent with each other. And you have to have both mindsets as your as as a CEO, uh, whether you're a CEO of a of a of a of younger startup company or whether you're a CEO of a of a larger, more established company. Okay, so let's move on to the second challenge that you write about. It's it's about taking good ideas too far, which seems like it could be related to innovation as well. Many of the systemic failures that we've seen through the decades seem to have been caused by this type of overenthusiasm or overindexing. Warner, could you take the first stab at elaborating on this? So this notion of good ideas taken too far, I think immediately puts everybody who has been in any kind of business for more than 10 years to the financial crisis that we saw around 2010. Obviously, it's a great example because the idea of bundling mortgage securities or any kind of securities that are sort of dependent on the individual risk into some larger issues, some larger publicly traded, even maybe securities is a good idea. And we've seen some of that for a long time. Airlines have routinely bundled airframes into investment vehicles that then um, fixed income investors could, could invest in, similar to when you bundle 500 houses into something. And it worked really well on that level. And then at some point went too far somewhere along the way when people stopped doing due diligence on some of these mortgage-backed securities. When we got into tranching it out two and three and four times, and then less sophisticated, less sophisticated investors getting in on the hype, that's sort of the classic one of taking it too far. And I do want to take you all the way back to the railway business. 
in North America. When this started way back in the 1800s, the capital, if you want, was abundant, right? So people put a lot of capital into building railways in North America and consequently a lot of capital into excess capacity. Excess capacity at that point looked, you know, parallel railroads, parallel lines, which resulted effectively in not enough demand on these things. And so returns on capital are low and your cash flows are low. Somewhere in the 1890s, all that, you know, went into a major bust, right? Now, the important part, just like with the mortgage-backed securities, it did not result in the end of railroads, right? So yes, it went too far. And yes, a lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of people also made a lot of money. But the sort of visionaries that looked at rationalized railroads, maybe had saved enough capital to buy up some of their competitors at, at, at that point, understood the business, you know, recognized the levers of value creation, could see the strategy of what, what they have to do. The, you know, again, good ideas taken too far did result in ultimately a healthy structure, but it sort of took that, you know, boom and bust cycle. And then, also, 100 years later, we see the same thing in the dot-com bubble, where we saw a lot of books claiming that the rules have changed. I certainly remember valuations that were sort of based on clicks and views. And the idea that was underlying that one is sort of everything that as long as it's bigger, it's going to be fine, right? But the reality is that that it's very hard to benefit simply from size, right? So it's the simplistic view that all the traditional economics were suspended is just not true, which, you know, Tim said at the beginning, returns on capital and, and organic growth or growth in general still leads to sort of the cash flows that in the end fuel valuation. And then valuation goes completely... Uh, away from the intrinsics of that, you get a bubble and every bubble ultimately will pop. As with the railroads sort of a century before, the internet after the after the pop of the bubble took a bit, but it now we would all argue created a, a, a lot of value, not only on the business to consumer side, which was sort of part of the source of the bubble, but especially on the business to business side. And it so maybe as a last example, we just talked about size, but also just competitive advantages. Um, uh, power generation, uh, there was a lot of conversation in the early 2000s about size is better and being big is better and being big brings a competitive advantage. And we saw some power generation companies that invested internationally and had sort of almost random power plants across the world. And it turns out that, you know, due to the different regulations and other things, it's really hard to have a competitive advantage across many, many regions. And it's far better to have 10 plants in one region than, you know, one plant in 10 regions kind of thing. So, again, you know, the idea of size is better might be true, but it's actually not just size. There has to be a distinct competitive advantage that comes with that size that just goes beyond simple revenue dollars or capital dollars or, or whatever it is. Got it. And and so what else happens when good ideas go too far beyond potentially delivering poor returns for individual companies or shareholders? And, and what can we do about it? When good ideas are taken too far as in the dot-com era or in the power industry or in mortgage-backed securities, as you talked about, they do lead to misallocation of resources in the economy which eventually have to be corrected. One of the things that we can do to minimize these things 
from an economy-wide perspective, since you know the global economy and most national economies are not centrally directed, fortunately, um, there's not much you can do uh, in general, right, to stop the misallocation of resources. Although you can do things to make sure the governments can do things to make sure that they don't exacerbate the problem, right? And you can argue that some of the systemic things, for example, in the uh, housing crisis that led to the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, could have been exacerbated by government policies, for example, in the U.S., which then reverberated around the world. But one of the things you, you can do is just make sure that the government doesn't create more of these distortions, right? But as an investor or as a, as, as a corporate executive, right, or as an entrepreneur or whatever, once again, goes back to having an independent perspective. If you go back to the finan- to financial crisis, right, some of the banks went through the crisis much stronger than others, right? Oftentimes, those were the ones who were going against the grain, if you will, right? They had, a, they had done their own analysis and thinking and said, okay, the housing industry has gotten overheated. You know, we're, we're going to be cautious about our exposure there. And which leads basically to the, the point that executives have to do that kind of fundamental analysis and develop their own point of view and not just go along with the herd. And I think that's one of the big challenges for companies and investors is to avoid going along with the herd and thinking independently. I think, Obi, are you, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, just think anytime you're hearing this time is different, it's a, it's a time to get pretty skeptical. Now, sometimes it really is different, but there have been so many cycles in different sectors of the economy, as Tim and Werner mentioned out, and those initial ideas can be good. You know, railroads are productive infrastructure. The Internet is productive infrastructure. They were just sort of over-invested, and people thought that the, the laws of sort of economic physics have changed. One example, as we were preparing uh, for this conversation, that struck me is supply chain efficiency. If you look over the last 20 years, many companies, as the world is globalized, as the world has opened up, many companies have um, really diversified their supply chain, but diversified that supply chain with the focus on efficiency. And so global just-in-time production, really maximizing every component of the supply chain to sort of the lowest cost place in the globe. And you know, when it has worked, it has worked very, very well. And with the coronavirus pandemic, with port backups, and now with, you know, uh, all the other geopolitical stresses, uh, probably the number one question is we're getting is it's not just about a sufi- uh, efficient supply chain. It's also about a robust supply chain that may not be more efficient every, you know, it may not be more efficient year over year, but over Taking that independent long-term view, I think the, the companies that have that more robust supply chain are enjoying the benefits of that now. And looking back through history, who do you think are the main beneficiaries of these good ideas? Despite the bubbles, a lot of folks would say that the fact that we can do free video calls, for example, to anyone in the world and have all these other digital capabilities is of great benefit to consumers, but companies don't always profit from them. How do you think about the division of this surplus created from innovation or by innovation uh, between the consumers and the companies that drive the innovations? Out of every single one of these, we have winners and losers, right? We have a Lehman and then we have the folks who short it. Sometimes you have very few winners, right? And sometimes you, sometimes you have many. We often see this notion that uh, maybe the banks create most value for themselves or certain industry exploits certain things. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. I also think it depends on the timing. So good examples are NFTs, right? Whether we think they are good or bad, let's, let's put that aside for a second. 
But it's very clear that the first seller of an NFT, if they're an independent artist, make more money than they didn't if they didn't do that, right? Whether the sec, whether the person who bought it based on speculation or just support for the artist then makes or loses a lot of money is sort of a very, very different question. House flippers, uh, uh, for example, right? I'm sure a lot of people retired uh, way back in 2005, right? And then they looked back and said it was great for me, but the last one who said on the securities wasn't great for them. So it's a little bit more over time. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than somebody benefited from all. I, On the consumer question, overall, I would argue that a lot of value of innovation, maybe even coming back to the first topic, goes to consumers. So, you know, airlines put ticket kiosks in to save money, but right. by and large, it just made travel easier. Even once everybody put them in, they couldn't yeah. charge more for it, right? So a lot of these kind of things also go to the consumers. Just one thing I wanted to add, though, on, on, what, on what Werner was saying, though, just to amplify that. I, I think if you look at most industries and in, in over a longer period of time, you'll see that most of the benefits ultimately accrue to the consumer regardless of whether the industry captures a, a bigger portion of the value. Like if you look at the automobile industry over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, regardless of the, the shift to, to electric vehicles, the quality, the reliability, the features, et cetera, of a car are so much better than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And yet the automobile companies per car don't make any more money than they did 20 or 30 years ago. And if you look across many industries, that's the case. Now, there are some industries that, Along the way, an individual company will capture a lot of, capture a lot of value, but often that's so small relative to the consumer benefit, right? A company like eBay, for example, I've recently gotten into collecting vintage bicycles and, 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 and buying vintage bicycle parts. And I can't imagine how I'd ever do that without eBay, right? And so there's a tremendous benefit to me. And the amount that goes to eBay is minuscule and they make up, you know, oh, you know, a couple of pennies on every transaction really adds up. But the benefit to the consumer is far outweighs the value created, I think, to, to, to companies in most situations. You another question, Sean? Yeah. I, so a question I'd like to ask is related to how it's different now is usually a dangerous assumption. And it's related to network effects. A lot of web platforms, for example, in recent years have been created where typically the valuation is predicated on network economics. And these valuation multiples can be really high. Do we need to rethink our approach to valuation in the context of the rise of digital ecosystems? Do they do anything different to how we should think about valuation? I, I, first of all, I don't think you need to change your approach to valuation, right? The real question is, is still about cash flows. The real question is you need to think about, is this really a true, does this particular business or company have a true network effect? Uh, or whether it's just words. I, I mean, I, I, I see so many uh, companies out there talking about ecosystems and platforms and stuff like that, that, you know, it, you can't have that many of these things. Otherwise, they, by definition, you can only have sort of one platform or one ecosystem or whatever that, that generates networks effects in, 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 in an area. So what you need to do when you're thinking about it as a company or as an investor is distinguish, are there true network effects here? If you go back to Werner's comment about the, there's a book by Halvarian and Carl Shapiro, Information Rules from the late 90s, where they talk about network effects and the benefits of it. And then they also, though, talk about how rare they are, right? Great. Thank you. Um, so the, the last challenge that you lay out in your article is climate change and its impact. And this one is obviously on a much bigger scale than the others we've discussed. And Obi, uh, in what ways do you see climate change 
challenging corporate value and growth, and how can companies best respond? Thanks, John. The fundamentals of value creation of cash flow, of cash flows driven by ROIC and growth remain the same. But climate change and the the attention that governments, investors, and companies are spending on climate change, the challenge is massive, right? And if you just, we recently published a report that says to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, there will have to be $9.2 trillion annual spend on physical assets. And as Tim mentioned, there there's a lot of capital out there chasing ideas. And so I think we have to be judicious about really what is the challenge or the opportunity presented by decarbonization. We are undergoing an energy transition, thinking about greener inputs, maybe from alternative energies or from bio-based energies, greening the supply chain, and also pure efficiency in, in one a company's own operations, right, is a major decarbonization lever of just driving, you know, carbon efficiency, which also should drive just, you know, headline productivity in a company's operation. There's another element about just reducing waste. Another one is regulators, the SEC, are increasingly uh, interested in a company's carbon footprint or a company's uh, climate impact. I think another thing to think about is the phys- uh, physical risks on one's assets, right? Like I said, I work ma- mainly in sort of asset-intensive industries. And if your assets are located in a place that might be more stressed because of climate change or water stressed because of climate change, or there may be, you know, heat exchangers work less efficiently because of annual temperatures uh, going down. So that's one area of climate change that we don't often think about, just the physical risk for a company's assets. I guess a fourth and very important lever that I think all stakeholders need to think about is really what are the products that will enable broad industries to decarbonize and make their own transition. And these can be things from lubricants for more efficient motors. It could be from wind turbines, alternative energies, and re- uh, bat- materials that go into batteries and electric vehicles. And so oftentimes there are you know product opportunities, asset pro- opportunities, and operations opportunities that companies and then shareholders can think about when addressing the the challenge of, of decarbonization and climate change. As we think about how to navigate this, especially on the new business side, it's making sure you're bringing some either unique market insight or unique capability besides just capital. Thanks, Obi. And Tim, do you have a perspective on this you'd like to share? Yeah. What's What's been impressive to me as I've been following and, 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 and learning about this issue and working with companies is just how much capital is available for investments in the energy transition from venture capitalists, from pension funds, et cetera. And as a result of that, capital is no, the fact is, 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 is not at all a competitive advantage. You know, build, you know, it takes a lot of capital to build wind farms and and solar fields, but there's plenty of capital out there to do that, right? So what's going to differentiate from a company's perspective, right? Just because I've got cash flows coming in doesn't mean that I should be putting cash flows into the energy transition if I can't create value. I'm better off, uh, you know, letting people who are have the right, not just the capital, but a different, the right skills to do that, right? So building a wind farm, let's say, requires skills like uh, identifying the right sites, negotiating with the landowners, negotiating with the local government, 
negotiating with the utilities to hook it up to the grid, et cetera. And then you can outsource the construction of the windmills and stuff like that and the operations. So the skill set is very different than, for example, what a lot of, lot of large companies have. And so the key here is, once again, uh, you have to figure out what can we do that's unique to actually create value that's better than someone else. And that's just not, that's not just best for our shareholders, but that's best for the economy as a whole, right? It's best if the people who are best qualified to do something do it, not us doing it just because we we feel like it's a good thing to do and we have a lot of cash flow coming in. But there's, but there's also a difference in what it means to participate in the transition. So if you're a car maker, you almost have to invest in the innovation or you don't have any product. That feels slightly different than a large oil and gas company figuring out whether to do a wind farm in the former, we see basically everybody shifting. In the latter, we see different strategies figuring out what to spin off and other companies keeping things at least in their portfolio. So undoubtedly, we see also seen some good ideas taken too far, given that the capital is available. So I'm, I'm sure we'll see some of that in 10 years as well. So Werner's mention of the car industry brings up another question. What can companies do when there's a massive trend that's going to cause their business to shrink? Do companies have an obligation to invest in things like sustainability and green growth, thereby hastening um, the uh, the elimination of their old businesses or helping put their old businesses out of business? Uh, and I'm going to try this one more time. Um, do companies have an obligation to invest in such things as sustainability and green growth in this context? In other words, should they be willing to basically invest to put their old businesses out of business? I like the fact that you that Werner brought up the the automobile industry because that is a business which is not going to go away. But the auto companies, the transition from making cars with in, internal combustion engines to electric vehicles for a car company is 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 a lot different challenge than let's say an oil and gas business, right? And and the fact is is that the automobile companies still do have a lot of advantages over startup companies in the electric vehicle space, right? Some people would make the case that the established car companies are, will do better long run in producing vehicles than the startups because they have, you know, the, the, they have a lot of other skills that are necessary. They have dealer networks, et cetera. They, they know how to manufacture and you can work on quality more so than the newer companies. So that transition is going to be very difficult and their big core business is not going to go away, most likely, or at least not for a much longer time horizon. Uh, on the other hand, if we eliminate our reliance on oil uh, and, and maybe to a lesser extent on gas, um, oil production, refining, et cetera, is going to go away. It's something you can do about it. It is, it is what it is, right? I, I have to do two things. One is I have to figure out what's the best way to manage the decline and smartly. You know? And from an economy perspective as well, we don't want everyone to shut down oil production tomorrow, right? Because that would be disastrous. Ideally, the people who have the highest cost and the most polluting production are the ones who shut down fastest. Same thing with coal, for example, right? If we eliminated coal tomorrow, we still got all these, you know, we need the electricity, right? The question is, what should you do with the cash flows as you wind down that industry, right? I have a choice. I can I, I can either invest those cash flows in, 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 in new areas or I can return to shareholders. And there the, an the answer, I think, is simple, right? If I can figure out a way to create value, if I can, if I have skills, for example, building platforms in the, in the deep waters of the North Sea, right? And I can use those skills to build wind farms. That's great. But if I don't have any skills, then I probably should be better off just returning that cash to shareholders. It's not like if I return that money to shareholders, it's not going to get invested 
into the green economy. It's just going to be invested by somebody else who might be able to do a better job. Uh, I think on that one, it comes to an, having an independent perspective on the trajectory of your market and then doing a hard look in the mirror or hard look around a, a boardroom of are we the best owner for maybe any step outs. Yeah, that's and where the debiasing stuff here. comes in when you when you read about the debiasing uh, 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 series that we wrote, things like a red team, blue team exercise, really challenging, should you own this, really asking the question about competitive advantage. All the things that we talked about really are caused by bias. And so, so in the end, uh, uh, looking at the processes of how you invest and how you make the decisions and how do you debias that is probably a very, very good aspect uh, uh, that avoids some of these mistakes. Right. And that last question actually is a good summary of the whole thing we've been talking about, because at the very beginning, we talked about the timeless truths, right? Number one, competition, right? Resources should go to those who can produce new ideas most effectively, right? So competition is good. Uh, and, and you have to have a competitive advantage to earn the right to, 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 to be in a particular business, right? And secondly, and that translates into you know, if I have a competitive advantage, then I can earn a, an attractive return on capital, which will allow me to create value for my for my shareholders. So it all kind of nicely comes together in that question in terms of what we've been talking about. That is indeed a wonderful way to conclude. Thanks so much, Tim, Obi, and Werner for this fascinating and wide-ranging discussion. And thank you everyone for listening. You can find the article Tim co-wrote, Reflections on 20 Years of McKinsey on Finance and Three Challenges Ahead, on McKinsey.com and in the show notes. And I hope you'll tune in to our upcoming conversation with Tim on the evolution of the finance and valuation landscape over the past 20 years. You can also find discussion transcripts on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, where you can also easily explore our entire library of more than 120 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future episode, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com finally if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com itsr follow us on twitter at mck strategy or connect with us on linkedin on the mckinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page thanks again for listening we look forward to having you join us again soon inside the strategy room